Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Chanel Cleason's two richly imagined dual timeline stories of Cuban America are breakthrough bestsellers, with the first, next year in Havana, a Reese Witherspoon book club choice. An overnight success, you might say. Yes, indeed, but an overnight success that's taken years of hard work writing contemporary romances as an apprenticeship. Hi there, I'm your host, Jenny Wheeler, and today Chanel talks about the family history behind her books and how a note on a CIA file inspired the plot for her most recent one, When We Left Cuba. But before we get to Chanel, just a reminder, the show notes for this binge reading episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Chanel's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And if you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review so others find out about us too. But now, here's Chanel. Hello there, Chanel, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Look, I can see from reading the the two Cuban books and looking online at some of your other work that you might feel a little bit like one of those people who's now described as a, quote, overnight success because the Cuban books have really taken centre stage. The first one of them next year in Havana, became a Reese Witherspoon book club choice. But you've done a lot of writing before those. So it's one of those cases of 20 years background, or not quite 20, but a lot of work to become a, quotes overnight success. Is that right? Um, Yes, I had written uh, about, I think, 10 contemporary romances before uh, I published next year in Havana. So I've definitely been writing for a bit, um, but still just feel very fortunate about how everyone's embraced the books and and really just been so supportive. Yes, you're, you're a New York Times and a USA Today bestselling author. You've also got an impressive academic record. But if we went back to the beginning, was there a quotes once upon a time moment when you decided that you wanted to write fiction? And if so, what was the the catalyst for it? I think law school was really probably one of the driving factors in me deciding to write fiction. Um, I I will be honest, I, I didn't really enjoy it very much and kind of realized it wasn't a good fit for me and wasn't what I wanted to do with my life. And I started thinking about the things that I was most passionate about. And while I'd never really considered being a writer, I've always been a really big reader. I mean, there's there's not a time in my life that I can remember not having a book in my hands. And I really just thought about how amazing it would be to have a career where I would get to work with books um, in, in this capacity. And so really just started um, taking it kind of more seriously and and wrote a manuscript and then got an agent and was really fortunate that everything was able to come together. That's fantastic. Yes, as you've mentioned, you've written 10 contemporary romances and I think they're arranged into three sets of trilogies. There's one called Wild Aces, which is about men who fly airplanes, there's Capital Confessions and International Schools and also 
one romantic suspense novel. So what made you decide to switch to dual timeline historic fiction? You know, I was really kind of at a crossroads in my career. As you'd mentioned, you know, I'd written quite a few um, romances and I was really thinking as a reader about um, the different types of genres that I enjoy and kind of wanting to maybe do something different. And then at the same time, um, I was talking to my father and my my family left Cuba in 1967. And I had sort of grown up on all of their stories, but there was one story that I hadn't heard. And um, it was a story of a night before they left Havana when everyone met in the backyard of my grandparents' home in the middle of the night and they buried their valuables because they couldn't take them with them when they left the country and they didn't know when they would be able to return. And my dad told me this story in the summer of 2016. And as soon as I heard it as a writer, it just really stuck with me the question of if you were forced to leave the only home you'd ever known and you didn't know when you would return, what would you save for the day that you could go back? And that question really is what sparked me writing next year in Havana. And it was just kind of a perfect intersection of me being at a point in my career where I was interested in in doing something different. I'd always loved historicals and loved reading them. So wanting to write them was certainly kind of a natural transition for me. And then having this family story come to light at that exact moment, um, it was just really kind of serendipity for me to embark on this new path. Wow, yes. And that central story of something buried in the backyard actually is one of the um, hubs around which next year in Havana moves. Did your dad ever say exactly what they did bury there or did you ask him? Um, it was not as romantic as as what's in the book, um, but really just kind of, um, you know, jewelry and, and financial documents and that sort of thing. Um, so, it, you know, it was just one of those things that the idea of it, and it was actually a really common practice. Um, people would bury things in the walls of their homes. Um, a lot of people tried to smuggle things out of the country at different times. We actually have quite a few family photos um, because one of my grandfather's friends Uh, put them all in film canisters and was able to get them out of the country that way because they didn't open the canisters at the airport. So um, it it really was, you know, something that I think is very relatable to a lot of um, Cuban exiles and and an experience that I wanted to capture. Yes. So next year in Havana, look, it did strike me that's a lovely title. It's got a real ring to it. And of course, it reminds you of the the famous phrase, next year in Jerusalem. And I was wondering, do Cuban exiles sort of still have that longing to return to Havana? Has that phrase got particular significance for people like your family and others who were forced to leave? It does. Um, It's typically a toast that people say, and and depending on where you're from, you know, some people say next year in Cuba, some people say next year in Havana, um, but it is a toast often at New Year's that you'll say. And, you know, just speaking for my family, I mean, I know my grandparents certainly held that longing to return throughout their lives. Um, So I do think it is a sentiment that that many people share who, you know, are, are separated from their homeland. Yes, yeah. And I'm a bit vague about where things stand as far as the Cuba travel ban. Are people like you now freely able to travel back and forth or is it still difficult? Um, It's still kind of unfurling. So there's certainly more opportunities than there were um, pre-2016. 
but there are certain categories of travel that you have to go under. Um, and it gets a little more complicated if you have a relationship to Cuba, if you were born in Cuba, then there's like some extra red tape that you go through. Um, you know, it's certainly not as easy as going, you know, to some places, but there are a lot of cruises that are sort of doing day trips. Um, and it, and it's opening up a bit, but definitely still kind of waiting to see going forward what that looks like for the future. Yes, it's it's rather remarkable after all this time that that should still be the case, really, isn't it? I mean, it's definitely, yes, kind of a unique situation. Um, our relationship with Cuba diplomatically and as well as its kind of relation on the world stage is, is unique in many ways. Yeah. Look, next year in Havana, for those who haven't yet had the chance to read it, tells the story of a granddaughter and her grandmother. In the book, Marisol returns to Cuba with her grandmother Elisa's ashes and when she gets there discovers a whole history that she didn't know about. And then the second book, which is just very recently published, When We Left Cuba, takes up the story of the Perez family a little bit further along in the 60s with the Bay of Pigs crisis and tells the story of Elisa's sister, the fiery Beatriz. I wondered, did you have a chance to go to Cuba to research it? And apart from the beginning um, idea, obviously, of something buried in the backyard, how much of it does relate to your own family history? I actually didn't get to go to Cuba. Um, I mentioned earlier the story with my father, and he told me that story in context of a trip that we were planning to go to Cuba. My grandmother has about... um, 60-something people in her extended family, and we usually do family reunions every few years. And so when travel started to open up, we looked at doing a trip as a family. But in the course of planning the trip and paying deposits, um, it really opened up a dialogue about how some of the older generations felt about going back. My grandfather in particular, who is 96, um, just felt really strongly and was very angry about us supporting the regime you know, financially and going back there. And I think he also had quite a bit of fear um, about the idea of us traveling there, given what he had experienced. So my dad and I just kind of made the decision that out of respect for him, it really wasn't appropriate to go at this time. Um, I know, you know, it's it's a really complicated issue within the Cuban-American community. Um, I have extended family that have gone back, and I know many people do. And while I certainly respect that, um, I think every family just kind of grapples with it a little bit differently. And for us, it just felt like the best thing was was to not go with with the current situation as it is. Yes. And so that family that you've got there, have you been able to maintain any links with them? It's really an extended family. Most the vast majority of our family came over at different periods. I think most recently, within the last few years, um, some people came over um, on my grandfather's side of the family. So, you know, it's one of those things where it's not a super close relationship um, just because it is, you know, kind of a distant cousin sort of thing. Um, yes. But a lot of families, you know, certainly were separated by this. Um, and I know my grandmother, when she was alive, certainly um, wrote friends and, and stayed in contact with people there. Yes, yes. Does having a book become a Reese Witherspoon book club choice automatically mean it's going to become um, a movie or a TV series? Um, it doesn't. Um, it, it's it's one of those tremendous honors, and she does um, adapt quite a few books, um, which is so wonderful. She's really done a lot to to you know kind of lift up books and 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 spark a new love of reading. 
Um, but it, it really just kind of depends. I was fortunate that we did option the book um, to another production company, and they've been really enthusiastic about the project. Um, it's it's certainly a long road from option to to seeing it on the screen. So right now, I just have lots of fingers crossed, and uh, I would certainly love to see it come to life if if that ends up coming to fruition. Fantastic. Yes, I think it would make a wonderful story. And because you also, they're strong women, but they love beautiful things. And you, you spend a lot of time talking about fashion and accessories and jewellery. So there's a beautiful picture that is painted in your mind as you read read the story as well, which would come over wonderfully in film. Oh, thank you. Yes, I definitely was kind of drawn to a lot of, I mentioned the photographs that we were able to bring over from my family's time in Cuba. And I was really drawn to those memories um, that I my grandmother would kind of relate to me in the photos that she would show me. Um, she had several sisters and they would kind of wear these beautiful dresses and go to parties. And it was um, very much kind of the spirit of, of what I captured in the book. Yeah, that's lovely. You've also mentioned that um, you realized when you started to research the book that perhaps some of the family stories you'd heard were a little bit framed by nostalgia on the part of your grandparents and that actually things were quite a lot grimmer than what they'd really been willing to talk about. Is that right? Yes. And I think, you know, that's kind of a common experience that people have shared to me um, as I've written the book. I've had a lot of people kind of reach out to me and say that they had similar experiences in their family. And I think probably for the generation that, that lives through all of that, some things were just too painful to talk about. And so a lot was kind of kept inside or kept privately. Um, and I think they really chose to to remember the good times. Since I've written the book, you know, I've certainly learned a lot more and it's kind of opened a new discussion of my family. And I've had readers tell me it's it's been the same for them where they've started to ask more questions um, about their family and what their experiences were. Yeah. Do you, do you feel as if um, it, it was the right time. I mean, it seems to me that this book has been accepted and appreciated by a, a much more general readership than you might have expected perhaps five or eight years ago, that it might have been more of a niche novel. It, it's now really hit through to the mass market. Do you think that that is just, you just wrote it at the right time and there is that, you know, um, sort of melting of the of the borders that may presage future changes? I think certainly kind of relations starting to open up a bit has um, spurred kind of a new interest in Cuba and the, and the ability for Americans now to travel there, even in limited capacities, has certainly renewed that interest. Um, but I also hope we're seeing an enthusiasm for more, more diverse stories and kind of looking at more underrepresented points in history. Um, that's something I'm you know very hopeful about and encouraged by. Yeah, that's, that is right. There's quite an awareness of, of more diverse stories, you're right. Look, you've said just a little bit of a lighthearted part side of it that you used the playlist list of Buena Vista Social Club when you were writing Next Year in Havana. I wondered if there was any playlist that you used when you were writing When We Left Cuba. I did. I do playlists for all of my books and I actually put them up on Spotify and on my website so my readers can kind of listen to what I was listening to when I worked on the books. Um, I definitely listened to a lot of Buena Vista Social Club. That's kind of one of the hallmarks um, for me of my childhood. My grandparents lived with us and I would come home to the sound of them playing their records after school. Um, and it definitely made me feel like I was in another world for for some time. So music is a huge part of my process. I really like to immerse myself as much as I can in 
the books and in the topics that I write about. And I think it kind of goes to engaging all of your senses when you're doing that. Yes, yes, yeah. Look, turning to your wider career, could you tell us a little bit about your life before you became a full-time writer? I think you you studied a number of different university courses and you lived in quite a few different places, haven't, haven't you? Yes, yes. I've been really fortunate to have some amazing opportunities. I studied abroad um, for several years um, for my undergrad and my master's in England and lived in Asia and kind of, I spent the first few years of my life living in the Dominican Republic. So I've been really fortunate to kind of have those experiences and they've definitely been um, very formative to me. And then I think as well, having the political background has been really helpful with my books. Um, My undergraduate degrees in international relations and my master's is in global politics. And so being able to use some of that has been, you know, very uh, beneficial when I've been doing research, particularly because these two books are um, so heavy in the politics of the times. Um, And so being able to have that background has really kind of given me, I think, a a richer experience working on these books. Yes. And, um, the second book, When We Left Cuba, the central character Beatrice has a relationship with an American politician who brings to mind uh, JFK quite strongly. Did, yes. did you, was that deliberate? <laughs> um, it was a bit. I definitely wanted to kind of honor the spirit of the times and that generation of men who served in World War II and sort of rose to um, political dominance at that time, like JFK, um, largely off of their records in the war and and their public service. Yes, yeah. When you were researching that that aspect of the story, did you discover new things that you didn't know before? Um, I think I really just kind of delved much deeper into that world. I did not anticipate when I really first conceptualized the book, having Beatrice be so involved in the espionage and really having her have such a close relationship with the CIA. But as I was researching and I came across um, some of the CIA's plots to assassinate Fidel Castro, one of them actually involved using one of his mistresses. And so it was kind of one of those things that as soon as I, I came across that piece of information, I found an opportunity to take a fictional character and put her in a historically accurate situation and kind of give her her shot at history. And so I really love um, when I write historical fiction, it's it's wonderful when you can find those real life moments and then sort of take a twist on them to fictionalize them a bit, but still have them be authentic to the times and, and to how the characters would have behaved. Yeah, well, that's a fascinating um, little bit of information. So is there quite a lot of the... CIA material from those years, which is now available for public scrutiny. Yes, there is. That's definitely helpful. Um, It's kind of a double-edged sword. I will say it's helpful, but one of the things I think that's really important when you're writing historical fiction as well is that you don't want your characters to have more information than they would have had at that time. Mm. So you really have to parse through your research materials to be careful that you're not giving your characters sensibilities that they would have in 2019, you know, with the benefit of hindsight and all the information that's come out about that time period. So I try to really kind of tunnel into what the characters on the ground would have known in that time and what they would have believed based on, you know, the knowledge that was available then. Sure, sure. Look, is there one thing that you've done in your writing career more than any other that was perhaps the secret of your success? You know, I definitely think there is an element of luck. I sort of tell everyone that. um, And it's unfortunate because it's one of those things you can't really replicate or manufacture. uh, It's just kind of an X factor 
with each book that you hope, you know, happens. And definitely the Reese pick was, you know, a huge, um, a huge opportunity for me. And, and I can't point to one thing, you know, other than to say it was just incredibly, um, it, it was an incredible opportunity and really has made such a difference in my writing career. I think having a passion for books is really important to any writer. Um, this is a career where certainly you have ups and downs and having that passion sort of sustain you through the downs is incredibly important. Um, and I think really just working hard, um, being professional, being someone that hopefully publishers and agents like to work with um, and having, you know, professional relationships with other authors that are certainly beneficial, um, that really grow you as a writer. And then just focusing on the craft um, and and reading as much as possible and, and writing as much as possible. I really think that the more you hone your craft, you know, the better results you see at the end. Sure, sure. Um, being the Reese choice, does that mean that you have a lot of approaches from real book clubs? And, and do you do that sort of thing where you might speak to a book club via Skype or does that not, that's not part of it? Um, I do that quite a bit. I have a lot of um, book clubs that kind of reach out to me. And so depending on my scheduling availability, I'll Skype with them often. And um, it's it's been really fun because a lot of them do sort of themed nights when they have these book club nights. So they'll, you know, cook Cuban recipes. I have some recipes on my website that I suggest for book clubs uh, or they'll listen to music. And so it's really fun to kind of see how they take their spin on the book and, and what they do to to celebrate it together. Yeah, that sounds really lovely. <laughs> yes, yes. Have you got a favourite way to that you relax and unwind? Are you a workaholic at personality? Um, I, I don't know that I would say I'm a workaholic. I do think that this kind of is a job where your work's never really officially done. And since you don't really have set work hours, um, I do tend to kind of work when I need to. And sometimes that bleeds into the evening or weekends, um, just depending on where I am in my schedule at that moment. I'm a really big reader. I read every night pretty much before I go to bed. And so that's certainly um, something that I do to unwind and, and sort of to kind of turn my mind off and just read for pleasure. Um, I also love to watch TV and movies, and I think I, I get a lot from that storytelling as well, just to kind of see different formats, um, and it definitely kind of goes into my writing as well. Sure. That that brings us very nicely to the part of the, the show where we like to talk about the binge reading aspect. It's called The Joys of Binge Reading because we've noticed a, a much bigger increase in the people who binge read in the way that they also binge watch things like Netflix. So turning to you as a reader, Chanel, who do you like to read? And have you been in the past a binge reader? I definitely think I am. Um, I tend to binge by genre, really. So I, I read pretty much every genre and I'll sort of get in moods where, you know, I'll just want to read mysteries. And so I'll, I'll read, you know, 10 or 15 mysteries in a row and then I'll say, okay, I want to switch it up. And so I'll read historical fiction. Um, so really very much just is kind of mood dependent for me. Um, some of my favorite books I've read recently, um, one of them was A Place for Us by Fatima Farhin Mirza. Um, it's this beautiful story about this Indian American Muslim family. And it was one of those books that once I started, I just couldn't put it down. It was so beautifully crafted. Um, definitely a favorite read for this year, if not probably one of my all-time favorite books. Um, it just really, really stuck with me. 
Um, I also loved in historical fiction, um, The Age of Light by Whitney Sherr that just came out. Um, and that was a really beautiful book that I kind of stayed up late reading. Um, and also I just finished uh, Catherine Arden's fantasy series. I just finished The Winner of the Witch, which was the third book. And those books were all phenomenal as well. So I've I've been really fortunate. I've had a very good reading year and definitely um, one of those perfect escapes for me. That's fabulous. You mentioned historical fiction and that as a genre seems to be growing very much. And there's, it's funny, quite a number of the authors that I'm reading or planning to interview at the moment have had a similar pathway to you. They started in contemporary romance and then have moved into the historical fiction area. Why do you think there is that popularity for historical fiction? You know, I think there's just so much um, that's interesting to learn about history. And I think there are so many parallels between the past and the present that really um, inform readers and, and make for fascinating storytelling opportunities. So I, I think it's really just a, a rich gold mine of of inspiration for authors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, we're starting to come to the end of our time together. So I'm just wondering, when you pause and look back over your writing career, at this stage, if you were beginning now, would you do things the same way or would there be things you might want to change? You know, I'm, I'm really happy with kind of the, the way everything's progressed for me. And I, I definitely think everything sort of had to happen in the order that it did. Um, I don't know that if Next Year in Havana had been my first book, um, I would have been able to, to do justice to the story. It was definitely a challenging book to write with the dual timeline lines um, and kind of an ambitious project for me at the time. It uh, definitely challenged me as a writer. But I think having that foundation of having written uh, 10 other books kind of gave me the confidence that I needed to to tackle the story and to write about something that was so personal. So I definitely look at my career sort of as a marathon and, and something that's evolving. And, you know, who knows where I'll be in 10 years. I certainly didn't predict when I started writing that I would be writing historical fiction but that's been one of the the fun adventures about this career, honestly, is just um, having you know this incredible journey and, and not necessarily knowing what's coming next, but being able to enjoy um, writing different types of books and interacting with readers and just being part of this wonderful community. Sure. And that does bring us to, to talking about what is next. I think I read somewhere that there might be a third Cuban book. What are you working on at the moment? What's What does your next 12 months of writing look like? So my next book release will be out in the summer of 2020. And that one's actually finished. I'm waiting on edits from my editor, but it's written. Um, and it's set in 1935 in the Florida Keys. And it features three heroines. One is Beatrice's aunt, and she's coming up to the Keys from Havana on her honeymoon. And her life intersects with these two other women. One is a native of the Keys, and the other woman is coming down from the Northeast on Flagler's um, magnificent railroad that he built that was supposed to go all the way to Cuba. And this, their lives cross as this hurricane hits in 1935 over Labor Day weekend. And it's actually one of the deadliest storms in U.S. history, but not one that I knew a lot about before researching the book. So it was really fascinating to work on it and to learn um, about the characters and their lives and, and how much the storm really affected the region. There were quite a few World War I veterans who had been sent down there to work on the railroad, sort of to get them out of Washington because they were protesting a lot of things with the government and the government felt like the optics weren't good. So they sent them down there to sort of disappear. And unfortunately, when the hurricane hit, 
they weren't properly evacuated and hundreds of them perished. And so it's really kind of a tragic moment in history, um, but one that was certainly fascinating to write about with all the cultural intersections and uh, just kind of the the rich setting of the keys that really comes to life. So that one will be out in the summer of 2020. And then right now I'm currently working on my book that will be out in 2021. And that one is set in the Gilded Age. Um, It's sort of Gilded Age, Spanish-American War, so turn of the century. And it's actually the first time I've written about a real-life heroine. Her name was Evangelina Cisneros, and she was a Cuban woman who was sort of known as the Cuban Joan of Arc. She was really involved in the fight um, for independence against Spain and has this really fascinating story. So her life sort of intersects with that of a female character who is at, right, working for one of the New York newspapers. Um, and they sort of become embroiled in this fight between Hearst and Pulitzer for for dominance over the, the New York newspaper scene and trying to draw the U.S. into war with Spain. So once again, it's kind of a lot of those cultural intersections that I love to write about. And um, sort of a more unknown period of history that I've just found really fascinating. Gosh, they both sound amazing. And the one that's coming out in 2020, does that have a title yet? It doesn't. Um, we're still kind of going back and forth on titles. I will admit, um, I love the titles for Havana and for When We Left Cuba so much that I've kind of set the bar a little bit high. So we're trying to find the perfect title that fits that book. Um the one that's going to be out in 2021 actually does have a title, and that one will be The Most Beautiful Girl in Cuba, because that was the title that was given to Evangelina Cisneros by the New York Papers. So it was sort of kind of the front page headline that they used to describe her. Yes, you mentioned the titles. The titles are great, and also the covers for those books are gorgeous as well. Did you have any input into those? Oh, thank you. I, you know, I cannot take credit for any of those. I have been so fortunate that my publisher, Berkeley Publishing, the cover department has just given me the most beautiful covers and I've just been absolutely thrilled. I I don't really have an eye for that sort of thing. So it's really fortunate that they are so talented at what they do. That's lovely. You mentioned how you like to interact with readers and um, if, if people listening to this wanted to interact with you, how would be the best way for them to go about it? Where can they find you online? My website is schnellcleaton.com. And then I'm also really active on Twitter, um, Instagram, and Facebook under the handle schnellcleaton. Yes, you've got some gorgeous graphics on Instagram, uh, quotes from your books and things, very, very beautifully done. I was having a look at them and thinking, gosh, this is really inspiring the way that you've approached it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Instagram's such a fun platform and I'm really enjoying connecting with readers there. Now, is it possible if if you had approaches from New Zealand or Australian book clubs, have you done any international book clubs or is it mainly within the US? And would you be open to that? I'm definitely open to it. I think it would just depend on scheduling with the time difference, but that, that would be wonderful. Great. Look, Chanel, it's been fantastic to talk. Thank you so much for your time and congratulations on the books. They're great. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading.
The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.